Let's take our Bibles this evening, if you'd turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 9. Acts chapter 9, and your Bible's here tonight. Springtime is, I love springtime. It's a little wet and kind of sloppy out there, ground's a little soft, a little muddy. If you let your kids go out and play, right, what happens? They come back with the their backside is speckled with mud from running around. And uh, so there's some downsides to spring, I guess. But overall, I love springtime. It's a time of new beginning, right? The leaves are coming out, and you can smell spring, and the ground is soft again, and things are growing and blossoming, and it's beautiful. Birds are chirping. I've got a bird, got a couple birds that have lost their way. Um, one bird sings beautifully. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't think he'll live long, but uh, he thinks morning is about 4.30 a.m. It's not an amen. Amen means may it be so. (laughs) I need to send him to your house, your place. That bird is at the wrong address. I'll tell him. Ugh. Yeah, he, it's not 4.30 (laughs) a.m. But anyhow, he's out there at 4.30 a.m. He's quite a beautiful singer. I've never seen him. But uh, he's quite... And then I got a woodpecker that's lost his way. And the woodpecker thinks pecking on my fascia and soffit, which is made out of aluminum. But he seems to enjoy aluminum. (laughs) But boy, is it loud, isn't it? And he, you came in one morning and said, what is that attacking our house? And it was just a woodpecker. But I like springtime. The birds haven't figured it out yet. They're a little Twitter-pated. But uh, it's a great time. When I think of this time of the year and new beginnings and things like that, I think about our church and what God has for us and uh, some of the things that he's bringing us through. And... Uh, And what he has for us this year, and not just this year, but what he desires for us, what he desires to accomplish in us in a church, as a church. And in Acts chapter 9, the book of Acts has a lot to do with churches and what God was doing in churches. If I were to ask you what you long for within this assembly of believers, I imagine there'd be a diversity of answers. Um, I imagine that there would be many of us that would say, well, we'd love to see our church continue to grow. And by that, we would mean spiritually, individually, as families, also corporately. We'd love to see people, see God add people to the assembly. And in this particular passage, we see that, that happens. But I also believe in this one particular verse, while it tells us at the end of the verse that the churches grew, in fact, it says the churches were multiplied, so they grew significantly. But within this one particular verse, it tells us the marks of a church where God does this kind of work. And so if I could communicate to you my heart's desire for you and for me as a local assembly and what my desire would be for us as a church, there are many passages we could turn to. But this is one verse that would be worth your studying and and contemplating. So I want to do that tonight. Look here in Acts chapter number 9. Look with me if you would would at verse number 31. Acts 9, verse 31, he says this. It says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now, we've talked about those three places even this morning. Judea is in the south, Samaria is in the middle, Galilee is in the north of Israel. And it says here that the churches were edified. It says, secondly, that the churches were walking in the fear of the Lord. And thirdly, it says that the churches were walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And at the end, it says they were multiplied. Now, in some ways, there's not a whole lot we can do about multiplication or addition, because that's something that God has to do. But the first three parts are something that you and I can choose. We can choose to be edified. We can choose to walk in the fear of the Lord. And we can choose to walk in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. 
And if we're going to do these three things corporately, then we need to do them individually. And I want to make that emphasis right up front. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at this verse and the book of Acts as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word. Father, there is much that is going on within this assembly of believers. And Lord, I thank you for it. Uh, Father, I do pray that you would give grace and strength and mercy. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give comfort and wisdom and understanding. And Lord, I pray that we would walk as we see these churches walked, really during a very difficult time. Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace and understanding tonight, I pray. And as I preach, help me. I pray to rightly divide your word. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want, before we look at these characteristics of these churches that were at rest, and that's how it's written there in verse 31, then had the churches rest. And the word rest means peace or quietness. It means prosperity. I don't think necessarily financially, although it could have. But it means, the word rest means to set at one again. In other words, churches that had been scattered and pulled apart, not of their own will, but they had suffered greatly. But at this particular time, the churches, and it's plural, multiple churches, had rest. They began to have a unity again. And when that happened, God blessed in specific ways. But to help us with the context a little bit, look back, if you would, all the way to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, look with me back there to verse number 5. We're going to look at several passages and work our way back up to chapter 9, because I don't think it's possible to understand that term, that churches had rest, without understanding what they had been through to get to that point. Okay, so look, you're at Acts chapter 1. Uh, look with me in verse number 5. And uh, I want you to remember with me how Jesus had left his disciples and promised them a comforter. And this was before, really, the church had been established. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. I'll read down through verse 11. It says, For John truly baptized with water, Jesus speaking, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Speaking of the day of Pentecost. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> that wasn't going to happen at that time. In verse 7 it says, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, you can move along with me, uh, proceed to chapter 2, if you would, at just the first couple of verses there. But then we read, so Jesus, he leaves his disciples, and that would have been dramatic, right? Traumatic. He leaves his disciples. He promises them the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And then in chapter 2, we read about the church being birthed. Look at chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now, I won't take time to read through this entire passage. Skip down to verses 7 and 8. I'd encourage you to go back and read. The book of Acts is a a very exciting book, for sure. Verse 7 says, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak... Galileans, and they're speaking of the apostles, uh, the people who were hearing them speak, said, aren't these men Galileans? And that wasn't a, they weren't applauding them or complimenting them. That was kind of a, aren't these guys from the backwoods? That's what they were saying. Galileans, strong dialect there. Um, In verse 8, it says, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? 
So they, the Galileans, the, the apostles are preaching and they're teaching and everybody there is hearing the message in their own language. He goes on to say in verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak. The Galileans, we hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And this, is, of course, is the day of Pentecost. But God was doing a mighty work. He was birthing his church. Look over, you're still in chapter 2, look over to verses 41 and 42. 41 and 42. It says, Then they that gladly received his word, of course Peter was preaching here, those that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And so we see the church is birthed in chapter 2. Now, look over, if you would, to chapter 4. So after chapter 2, things are amazing, wouldn't you say? 3,000 people are saved and baptized, and, and they're growing in the Word of God, and they're meeting together, and the church is growing, and we would all say, amen, that's wonderful. But look what happens beginning in chapter 4. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through, fo- through the following verses. I'll read, read there, verse 1. It says, and, and, and as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So now persecution is coming upon the church, but people are still believing, and they're still being saved. Look down to verse 17. You're still in chapter 4, verse number 17. It says, But that it spread no further among the people, they're speaking now, these who hate the word of God, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now they're threatening, okay. The religious leaders of that day begin to persecute, and they begin to threaten the apostles. Look over to chapter 7, chapter 7, in verse 54. Chapter 7, in the book of Acts, verse number 54. In chapter 7, we now see the church and the followers of Christ, disciples. You remember that term? We talked about that quite a bit for two Sundays. Disciples means a learner, someone who's taught Christ, the Word of God. The learners, the disciples of Christ, begin to be murdered, okay, in chapter 7, verse 54. Uh, Look there, chapter 7, verse 54, it says this, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city, this deacon, this godly man, and stoned him. That's never happened here at Trinity. No deacons have been stoned. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, who was a deacon, as he called upon God. So in Acts chapter 7, we see that there's persecution and it begins to intensify. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we're introduced to a man by the name of Saul, okay, who would later become the apostle Paul. And in verse 1, it says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. He was pleased with Stephen being stoned to death. He approved of it. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. In chapter 9, in verse number 1, Saul is continuing to persecute the church, but on his way to persecute the church, on the road to Damascus, he encounters Jesus Christ, and he is saved. Look there, chapter 9 and verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples, 
I just breathed, breathed over that, right? He's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. How, how, would that, how would you recently, and I don't know all the details what happened in Sri Lanka, but uh, Islamists attacked and bombed and killed many. In one particular area, they actually attacked a church where there was a children's ministry taking place, intentionally seeking to destroy them. We don't live in fear like that, although I will say, after some of the things that have happened recently, um, this week, I, I, when I was hearing about it on the news, I thought to myself, I wonder how far away that is. I don't know. But this is what they were living with, threatenings. They're just trying to follow Jesus Christ. They're just trying to be learners of him. They just want to gather with one another who are saved and born again and gather around the word of God and listen to it and encourage one another and love one another and learn of Christ. That's all they want to do, right? As a child of God. And yet, Saul is breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples. There's that word again, just learners of the Lord. And he goes unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Look down to verse number 20, still in chapter 9, verse 20. Of course, in the verses, I won't read them all, but in the verses between verse 20 and the ones I just read, Saul encounters Christ and he's saved. Verse 20 says, And straightway he, Saul, preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Well, that's quite a lot that's happened in, the, in those verses that I didn't read. In verses 1 and 2, he's breathing out threatenings and he's obtaining authority to go in into the synagogues and, and, and uh, arrest Christ's followers, men or women, and imprison them. In verse 20, he's in the synagogue preaching that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's what only God can do that. But the result of all this, and now we're in chapter 9, the result of all this is that the churches had rest. And you see that in verse 31, our text. And the word rest, again, means peace and quietness. It means to set at one again. It's rest. A church is not always in a place of rest. Sometimes a church is in a time, there, there's, a, there's a, it's a time of tumult, time of hardship, time of grief, time of suffering. But in this particular time, the churches had rest. And they had rest throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, it says. And I want to I look at these three characteristics of a church that is, has unity, a church that has rest. The first characteristic of a church that has rest is that they're edified. A united church is edified. A united church, a church that has unity, is a church that is built up and strengthened in the word of God. It says in verse 31, look there, the middle part, then all the, the churches, then had all the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and were, and were edified. Edified. The word edified means to build up. As a, a, someone who builds a house, it means to embolden, it means to construct. In the New Testament, a church is compared to a building. And the Bible has a lot to say about building a church spiritually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, Paul writing these things, he says, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But then he says this, Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. As pastors, we ought to take heed how we build. As individual members of this local assembly, we ought to take heed how we build on the foundation that Christ has laid. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, "...in whom all the building fitly framed together, growing into, unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." We're, a, we're the habitation of God through his, by His Spirit. We're the dwelling place of God, and it matters how we're framed and built together. It matters. It's important. And we have something to do with that, how we're builded together, what kind of a church we are. Are we a habitation that God is pleased to dwell in? A habitation that He's pleased to reveal Himself in His glory a habitation where he actually gets the glory at all. Are we that kind of a habitation? 
In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, Ye also, as lively stones, speaking to individual members, are built up a spiritual house, unholy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So it's important how we're framed together. Uh, someone talk, was talking to me the other day about building a barn and and, uh, and they didn't come right out and ask me, Pastor, would you help me build this barn? But that was kind of around. And uh, they didn't know exactly how to build the barn. I have built, helped build some barns. I haven't built any barns. I've helped build some barns. And, uh, and I said to my wife, they don't want me leading the barn building team. I can help build a barn, but you don't want me building the barn. It wouldn't be framed together right. There'd be some things that would be crooked. We'd get halfway done and go, wow, what happened? Where do we go wrong? I'm not the barn builder, not the guy you want in charge. It, it matters how a church is framed together. It matters, and we all play a role in this. We all play a role in this. You know, God has made some provisions for the edification, the building up of Christ's followers. You remember back in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about how he gave gifts. Christ gave gifts. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the edification of the saints, the building up of the body of Christ. Very important. God cares how the body of Christ is constructed. Why? Because we are the habitation of God by the Holy Spirit. It matters to him. We're the dwelling place of God Almighty by his Holy Spirit. You know, when I read it in the Old Testament about the details that God included about the tabernacle or the details that he gave about the construction of the temple, it mattered to him. Does this assembly matter any less to God? Does this dwelling place of God matter any less to God than the, the, uh, the movable tabernacle in the Old Testament? Is this dwelling place of God less important to God than the temple was that was built with hands? I dare say no. I think he is absolutely very concerned with how this dwelling place, this temple of his, is framed together, is built up. You know, God wants churches to be edified. Our church ought to be an experience of being built up and strengthened. God is dedicated to the building up, the edification of churches. And God wants you and me to edify one another. Romans chapter 14 and verse 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. We ought to follow after those things so that we can build up and encourage one another. Trinity Baptist Church ought to be a place of encouragement. When, when you come and when I come, it ought to be, it ought not be sigh. It ought to be anticipation because we're going to have the opportunity to minister one to another words of encouragement, edification. And also know that when we come and we gather together with one another, we're also going to be edified and encouraged and built up. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 2, it says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, the latter part, it says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, sacrificial love, edifieth. Sacrificial love. Putting the needs of others within our membership. Other believers who are walking this path that we call life. Going through the ups and downs of life. People who used to be unsaved, but who are now saved, who are a part of the body of Christ, who are going through life by faith, intending to reach heaven's shore someday, it is a privilege to edify one another and to sacrificially edify one another. It is a privilege. It is something we ought to long to do, but to look for opportunities to do it. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, the latter part, he says, let all things be done unto edifying. All things, everything we do, ought to have a purpose, and that is to edify, to encourage one another. In Ephesians 4 and verse 29, it says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, which would have the idea of gossip and backbiting and saying things about one another. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. 
I'm walking down the hall and I'm talking with Pastor Burden and you overhear our conversations, you overhear my words, my words ought to bring edification to you. If I'm walking down the hall or I, we, or I happen, you happen to send the wrong text to the wrong person, that text ought to bring edification, shouldn't it? It ought to encourage. Well, that's great. Did you hear what's going on? That is wonderful. That's good news. This is the wonderful truth. Hey, I think you got the wrong guy, but thanks. You know? There ought, there ought to be words of edification, grace ministered to the hearers. God wants our church to be an assembly of encouragement. This church was edified. The churches were edified. They were built up. They were strengthened. God wants our church to be an assembly of, of encouragement. You know, unkind, discouraging people aren't an encouragement. That, that's a, I didn't have to say it that way, did I? Discouraging people aren't an encouragement. But it's nice to think about it. Are you an encourager? Are you encouraging? I'd like to think that I'm always encouraging, but I'm probably not. In fact, I know I'm not. It's the ministry of God for you and for me to be an encourager. It pleases God when you and I encourage one another. God wants Trinity Baptist Church to be a church of encouragement. Every time we get together, we should be determined to encourage one another. The broader sense of the word edify that we see in verse 31 has the idea of encouragement. I think it was William Ward who wrote this. He said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. Throughout my life, there have been different people who have encouraged me at key times in my life. There are many of you in this room who have encouraged me at times in my life. A note, a text, a smile, a word of encouragement. I don't think we realize how important encouraging words are. But I want you to think about it right now. I want you to think back over your life and at times in your life, maybe low times in your life or hard times in your life or times in your life where you were having a hard time seeing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and God brought along a fellow believer to encourage your heart. Can I encourage you? Can I challenge you to be an encourager? Be an encouragement to one another. I've recently been convicted about not just being an encourager to our church family, but to my own family to my wife, to my children. Ian's 12 now, William's 6. He'll be, be 7 in August. Does a 7-year-old need encouragement? We don't often think of that, do we? We don't often think that a child needs encouragement. They do. They do. You see, these churches were edified. They were encouraged I would, I would actually go so far as to say it's my hope and it is my dream that Trinity Baptist Church would be characterized as a church of, that encourages one another. That the older who have lived longer and seen more, and it's not new to you. You've been there. You've lived it already. And some of us who are younger are, are wringing our hands and frantically wondering what's going to happen next. And, and you smile and Someone tonight mentioned to me in conversation at a time in their lives where uh, he and his wife had nothing. You know, they had nothing. They, weren't, they didn't have hardly anything at all to live on, but they survived. But you know what? And, and they did well. But we, listen, you've already been there. You can encourage those of us who are younger. Hey, it's going to be all right. We've been there. We've been there. It's going to be all right. Keep trusting in the Lord. Keep following his word. He's not going to let you down. You can encourage the younger generations. And younger generation, you and I can encourage, still including myself and the younger generation, we can encourage the older generation, generations. One of the primary reasons I think God instructs us to take every opportunity to, to gather together as a church is so that we'll encourage one another. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. It says, and let us consider one another. Think about that just for a moment before I go on. Let us consider, I, I ought to think about one another. About my fellow church members, I ought to think, consider them, 
to provoke unto love and to good works. And how do we provoke one another to love and good works? Jesus Christ is our supreme example in this, and we're told we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. How do, how do I provoke my children to love and to good works? By loving them sacrificially, that's how. How do I provoke my fellow church members to love and good works? By loving them sacrificially, by putting them before myself. How can I provoke, how can we as husbands provoke our wives to love and to good works? By loving them sacrificially. Wives to husbands. This is not new. And he says, I want you to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And then he says this, this is so practical, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. So he says, don't, don't miss gathering with the church. Don't miss it. That's what he says. In the context of, consider one another. Think about one another. Provoke one another to love and to good works. And how does he say that? He says, don't forsake gathering with the believers. As the manner of some is, like some do, he says, but exhorting one another, encourage one another, and so much the more as you, de- as you see the day approaching. You know, we should gather together as often as we can with our purpose being to encourage one another. You can come and gather with God's people and you, you say, I don't know what pastor's going to preach tonight, or I don't know what pastor's going to preach next Sunday morning or on Wednesday night. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, what he's going to preach, or how that's going to go. But you know what? I love the body of Christ. And, I'm, and you know what? You've been in my mind. I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. I, I, I think about you in your, your line of work. I've been praying that you'll, God will give you a victory over temptation. I've been praying that God will give you wisdom and understanding in your, your area of employment and expertise. It's so good to see you. How's your week going? I've been praying for you. You've been on, you, I'm considering you. I'm considerate of you. Now, these churches had endured tremendous persecution, and I read you some passages of Scripture so you'd understand that and see that. But they had endured tremendous persecution and tremendous hardship and tremendous discouragement and rejection. They knew what it was to suffer, and they knew what it was to be oppressed, and now they had rest. And what did they do? They encouraged one another. That's what they did. You know, there will be days, I suppose, and for some of us there are days of hardship right now, but there, there are going to be days of hardship in the future. But whether you're going through a hardship or not, you can be an encourager within the body of Christ. And I challenge you to do that. I plead with you as your pastor to do that. Look at one another as the ministry. Look at one another and treasure one another as part of the body of Christ. And we've talked about this in recent weeks, and Jesus said, what you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. When you serve one another, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. When you love one another, you're loving him. So do that. You know, I, I, think, I think they understood the value of encouragement. George Truett was a tremendously effective pastor for decades in Texas. His heart was broken when he accidentally killed his best friend while they were on a hunting trip. His daughter said that she never heard him laugh after that day. Truett had a radio program, and each day when he, it came to a close, he would say this, quote, be good to everybody because everybody is having a tough time. I think that's true. And I emphasize maybe ad nauseum to you that when you come in this, when you gather together with this group of believers and these folks and everybody looks so fine and nice, like everything's just hunky-dory in their life, and and you're sitting there, and you're thinking about what you're going through, and the challenges of life, and you just barely have made it here, I I encourage you to look around and to see the body of believers who are, where everything is not just hunky-dory. Be an encourager. Edify one another. These believers knew personally what a heavy burden people were carrying, and And that particular pastor was encouraging compassion toward people in general. So first of all, I noticed there the church was edified. It was strengthened. It was a church that was encouraged. Churches that were encouraged. They were united because of it. Secondly, I noticed that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. And it's right there in our passage. Look there in verse 31. 
it says, and we're edified, and then it says, and walking in the fear of the Lord. These churches are walking in the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to be walking in the fear of the Lord? Well, I notice that to walk in the fear of the Lord requires that we walk. Have you ever found yourself paralyzed with fear? Paralyzed with grief? And you don't know what else to do except for to continue to walk. He doesn't say run a good race here. He doesn't say they ran a good race. He doesn't say they... There isn't a whole big list of things that they did. It just says that just, they just walked. They just walked. They walked in the fear of the Lord. And, and just because sometimes we go through times of major hardship or loss or suffering doesn't mean that we can stop walking. You know, life sometimes, doesn't it feel like sometimes life is just kind of pushing you from behind and you'd like, you'd like to stop, but you can't. I mean, you got to go. You got you to go. There's, you can't stop. And, and here I, I can't help but notice that they're just walking. That's all they're doing. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to those here this evening who, who are enduring difficult trials or maybe have some financial hardship or disappointment or maybe you're disillusioned. Or maybe there's a disease that you've been told is incurable or maybe the loss of a loved one. But I am telling you that you absolutely need to keep walking. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter was talking and writing to believers who would suffer greatly. And in chapter 4 and verse 12 of 1 Peter, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Rejoice? Why? Because ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. What were some of the sufferings of Christ? He was rejected. Have you been rejected? Yeah, we emphasize the physical. He took upon himself the sin of of, our, of the whole world, our sin. But you know, as we go through this life, the hardships of life, the, 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 the basic trials of life, we ought to count it all joy. We really ought to, and we must trust in the Lord. And, and the bottom line is, is these believers just kept walking. And notice, this is most important, that what they walked in. Because the bottom line is, we're all going to keep walking to a degree. You're all gonna, we're all going to keep putting steps one in front of the other. But notice what they walked in. It says there that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, the Bible says a lot about fearing God. These believers were walking in it. And what is the fear of God? Well, the word fear here is phobos. It means to be put in fear. So we understand what he's talking about here. To be exceedingly afraid. It means terror, alarm, fright. Now, there are 63 verses in the Bible where God tells his people to fear not. Matthew 10 and verse 28 says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you ever fear people? Do you ever, you ever find yourself in a situation where you're fearing how people will respond to what you do or what you say? Are, are you the kind of person... And not everybody is, but are you the kind of person that's crippled by fear of man? The Bible says the fear of man bringeth a snare. Some of us in this room are, the, are that kind of a person, that we're, we're terrified. We get paralyzed because of fearing people. But it says here, these churches walked in the fear of God. And every one of us, if we want to be this kind, the, a church like these churches were, we need to encourage one another we also need to walk in the fear of God. You know what? The fear of God will keep us from a lot of harm and a lot of heartache and a lot of grief. It'll, it, it, the, walking in the fear of God yields tremendous blessings upon our lives. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Every one of us as members of Trinity Baptist Church, ought to have a holy fear and reverence and awe for God. 
We ought to be concerned about offending him. Now, this is very important. It says here they walked in the fear of God. And it led to the church growing by multiplication. This idea that they walked in the fear of God tells me that that there was purity within the church. They were more concerned about what God knew to be true than they were about what people thought or what what they felt. It, It was impacting their fear of God, was impacting the decisions of their lives. How how did these churches benefit from walking in the fear of the Lord? Well, Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Again, in Proverbs, in chapter 8, it says, the fear of the Lord will cause us to hate evil. In chapter 10 of Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord will prolong life. In, In chapter 14 of Proverbs, it says that the fear of the Lord provides strong confidence. Some of us here lack that. We're looking at the waves of our situation, and we're not fearing God. Fear God. It provides strong confidence. It's a fountain of of life. Uh, In Proverbs 16, it tells us that the fear of the Lord prompts us to depart from evil. Recently, in a conversation with with an individual, they they were talking to me about some of the things that they were dealing with and some of the temptations that they were were being overwhelmed with in in their particular life. But you know what they talked about? They said, and here's what came out, they, they, they said, but it's the fear of God. I'm concerned. He knows this. I am afraid to go into that. I'm afraid to do it. I'm afraid to enter into it. And I was rejoicing. I was so thankful. It was the fear of God. It, it's not that the person who fears God is never tempted. It's not that a person who fears God never questions or doubts or stumbles, but someone who fears God while they may be tempted, there's going to come a point where the fear of God is going to overwhelm them. And they're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there. In Proverbs 19, it, the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord leads us to a satisfying life and spares us from much evil. Well, I want to teach my children to fear God. In Proverbs 22 and verse 4, it says, The fear of the Lord is the way to riches and honor and life. You know, dysfunctional homes and... They do exist. Dysfunctional homes are homes where children have little or no respect for their parents. They don't fear their parents at all. Well, dysfunctional churches are churches that don't walk in the fear of the Lord. These churches feared God, and they walked in the fear of God. I love how that's written because sometimes we think of the fearing God as some sort of an ethereal thing. It's kind of, is that a feeling, or, or what is it? Well, here, I love it. They just, it just one step at a time, just... Fear God one step at a time. One decision at a time. I'm going to make this decision, Lord. Is this a decision that would please you? Lord, this is how I'm going to address the situation in my family. Is this how you would want me to? There's a fear of God. One step at a time. And the church has had rest. So how about, how about you? Do you fear the Lord? There's one last truth, and it's a wonderful one. Look at verse 31, the middle part says the churches were walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Do you like comfort? Do you have a, you have a chair at home and it's the, the most comfortable chair in the room? Uh, this afternoon, I, uh, I was reviewing for tonight and I had kind of positioned myself on a couch in our home that is the most comfortable one and I think it's the most comfortable spot in the house. And I kind of got in my position and then Tori came over. And apparently she likes that couch, too. And uh, so she kind of crawled into that couch with me, and I was trying to figure out if this was more comfortable or less comfortable as we were both on that couch together. But it's nice to be comforted. It's nice to be able to come home from a long day and your spouse, your wife, comfort you. Isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. Um, we ought to comfort one another, but here it says that they, they, they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. The word comfort means solace. It means consolation. It means to exhort and even to entreat sometimes. To entreat. Not to badger, but to entreat. And we are to be filled with the Spirit. The Bible tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God lives inside of every single one of us and that from within, from within, He teaches us and directs us and He convicts us of sin. He encourages us. He strengthens us. He gives us hope. 
In Galatians 5, Paul wrote, he said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It seems awfully simple. You say, I'm being overwhelmed with the lust of my flesh, the fears of my flesh, the, the uh, addictions, the, the cravings of my flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And Galatians goes on to, on to say that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in the lives of those who walk in Him. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And so I ask you here this evening, are you walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Just one step at a time. Just one truth at a time. That's all I'm asking. One situation at a time. Walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He is the comforter. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Are you saying yes to him? Are you letting the Holy Ghost have his way in your life? He's the comforter. You say, oh, do I lack... Oh, Pastor, I'm, I'm struggling so much. I have no comfort. I have no peace. I have no solace. I have no consolation. Let him comfort you. Say yes to him. And there are times in my life where the trial or the struggle or whatever it may be is, is taking place, and maybe it's the fear of man or whatever, and, and there's anxiety and fear and frustration and all these different things that overwhelm at in, any one of us at different points and different times in our lives. And you know what's dawned on me is at those moments, I'm actually opposing the one who's comforting me. Have you ever argued with the one trying to comfort you? Have you ever looked at them and said, you don't know what it's like? Well, you know what? Sometimes people don't know what it's like, do they? Does the Holy Spirit know what it's like? Why would we say that to him? No, I've never verbally said that to him. Sometimes that's how I act. You don't know what it's like. Don't, don't quarrel with him. Don't oppose the one trying to comfort you. In fact, Galatians 6 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit, receive the ministry of the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And then he says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, doing what is right. For in due season we shall reap if... We faint not. And some of us here tonight, and there may be some, maybe not many, but there may be some, and you're at the point of fainting. But you can't faint. Don't faint. Don't give up. Let the Holy Spirit see you through. Let the Holy Spirit, who never leaves you, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily living inside of you, let him comfort you and guide you through life's, well, through life. Through life. By the way, the Holy Ghost is no comfort to the child of God that resists him. You will have no comfort, and I will have no comfort. We will be most miserable if we resist the Holy Spirit. And for some of us, it really just needs to be where we just get on our knees with the Lord, alone with him, and just say, Lord, it's, I'm, I'm in your hands. You guide me by your Holy Spirit and your word. One truth at a time, Lord, and I, I will try to obey you and trust you as I go through this life. And he knows our frame. But, Lord, I surrender. And I'm going to trust your Holy Spirit. And I'm going, to, I'm going to allow him to console me and to comfort me and to give me moments of peace. And I'm going to trust him. Look at the last statement in verse 31 and we're done. This, these churches that were united these churches that were at rest, it says of them, they were multiplied. And what was it that produced that? They were edified. They were walking in the fear of God. And they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We could sing, have thine own way, Lord. Lord, we want to be members, believers who encourage one another and are strengthened and built up in the word of God and the truth. Lord, we want to be a church. We want to be church members who are walking in the fear of God every day. You know, I'm up here in Flushing and 
Jeff, you're down in Ann Arbor or wherever you end up going, right? Angela, wherever you're, wherever you're working and laboring, you're walking in the fear of God. You're walking in the fear of God. And you know, as a pastor, as pastors, we ought to be able to think of you throughout the week and pray for you as God brings us to our hearts and our minds. And we ought to pray, Lord, help them to walk in the fear of God today. Help them to walk in the fear, of, the fear of you today. Lord, give them the wisdom that comes by fearing you. Give them the hope that comes by fearing you. Lord, help them not to fear man, but help them to fear you. May it be so. And then they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Cindy has reminded me in the last few days, uh, Seth, you can't fix everything. You know, some people can just hear things and it just, you know, thanks for telling me, and then, whoop, short memory, I'm done, moving on. What's for dinner? I'm not like that. And I need to do a better job in some ways. And I don't know that I care more than somebody who can shut, shut it down and move on to the next thing. I think some of us are just wired differently. But you know what? I can't be everything to you. And you don't want me to. I'd be a sore imposter. I'd be a poor imposter for God. You need the Holy Spirit. You need him. I need him. And we need to, we need to allow him to minister to us and comfort us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these churches that this could be written of. Lord, they, they endured much hardship. And yet, Father, as you brought them through the trials, I think you set before us a pattern that we should seek to follow. And so, Lord, I pray this for Trinity Baptist Church. I pray that we'd be a church of encouragers. Lord, I pray that we'd be a church of people who walk in the fear of you. And Lord, that we'd be a group of people who walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm asking for this. Lord, I think you've set before us a pattern, so help us not soon forget it. May we pray for it. May we seek to do it. But Lord, I'm asking you to accomplish it in our hearts, in our lives, in this, your church. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.